Now, if you're new here, then uh, I think you've come on a perfect Sunday. And, and the reason why I say that is because this morning we are starting a brand new series entitled By Faith. And the reason why this series is entitled By Faith is because the chapter that we're going to be looking at, uh, the, the author of the chapter receive, repeats the phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Multiple times throughout the chapter, he repeats the phrase, by faith. And the chapter that I am making reference to is Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if you're new to church, you probably have no idea what Hebrews chapter 11 is, but Hebrews chapter 11 is actually a very well-known passage in the Bible. And what we find in Hebrews chapter 11 is we're given a biblical definition of faith. And then in addition to that, after we're giving a definition of faith, then we're giving multiple examples of what faith actually looks like. And so that's actually the goal of this series. It's a seven-week series, and here's my goal. At the end of this series, what I hope to do is to provide you with a biblical definition of faith, and then for the rest of the weeks, I want to give you examples of what biblical faith looks like. So I want to define it today, and then I want to give you examples of what it looks like for the rest of the series. Does that make sense? So because we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, um, that's where we're going to be starting this morning. This morning, uh, our passage comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews is towards the end of your Bible, so there's a better chance of finding it if you start at the end and go left. Uh, you go to big number 11, little number 1, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through six. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in that white rack back there. You don't have to get up and get it now, but you can take one with you on your way out. Hebrews 11 verses one through six. One of the things that we do here uh, is we have people stand during the reading of God's word in honor and a respect for God's word. So if you can please stand as we read from the word of God this morning. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Here's what it says. Now faith is what? In what we hope for and what? About what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous, as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It's the word of the Lord. Let me, let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. And God, I ask you now that you would keep this imperfect person from misrepresenting your perfect word. I pray, Lord, that from the moment I say amen, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people say, amen. you may be seated. All right, so this morning, like I said, we're going to be addressing the subject of faith, and we're going to be looking at faith through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this passage under three headings, okay? So this morning, we're going to begin by looking at the meaning of faith. Then after we look at the meaning of faith, we're going to look at the barriers to faith, and then we're going to conclude by looking at the source of faith, all right? So we're going to look at the meaning, the barriers, and the source. Now, this morning, I want to begin by looking at the meaning of faith. In other words, I want to begin this morning by giving you a biblical definition of what faith is, okay? Now, I, when you look at verses 1 through 3, I really don't have to give you a definition because 1 through 3 gives us the definition. So my goal this morning, instead of providing a definition, my goal is to explain the definition that's already given, okay? Now, listen, the reason why I need to give you a definition for faith is because a lot of us, and when I mean a lot of us, I mean all of us, what we have ha has happened in the church in particular and just in the world in general is that the definition of faith has changed. Here's what I mean. A lot of us don't have a biblical definition of faith. 
And by a lot of us, I mean all of us. And by all of us, I mean Christians. Okay? One of the things that breaks my heart is that when I'm sitting and trying to pastor someone who's struggling with depression or anxiety or fear or marriage, whatever it is that they're struggling with, and they're sitting there, and I start hearing them describe faith, and I'm like, that's not biblical faith. And one of the things that's scary about that is that the world has influenced our definition of faith more than we've influenced their definition of faith, okay? And many of us have a very worldly definition of faith. And so my goal this morning is to give you a clear biblical definition of what faith actually is so that for the rest of this series, as I bring up the concept of faith, you can know exactly what I mean. We don't get to define faith. God does, okay? Here's what the world says when it comes to faith. The world almost always, when it uses the word faith, has the word blind right in front of it. Blind faith. A leap of faith. See, see, in the world that we live in, in the best case scenario, best case scenario, faith is an educated guess. That's best case scenario. In worst case scenario, faith is wishful thinking. That's pretty much the only spectrum the world gives us. Faith is either an educated guess at best or wishful thinking at worst. The problem with that is that that's nowhere near what the Bible says faith is. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I care what God says about this. Amen? Amen? And so what I want to do in this first point is I want to give you the meaning of faith. I want to give you the biblical definition of Faith. And the way I want to do that this morning is I want to look at three words that the author of Hebrews uses, who I think the author of Hebrews is Paul, but I don't, I don't have time to get into all that. But, but, but the author of Hebrews in this, just in these three verses, he gives us three words that help us understand what biblical faith actually is. Okay. Now, let me, get, let me begin with a word that I don't have highlighted, which is the word faith. Here's what the word faith means in the Greek. Okay. The word Faith means a conviction or a certainty. It means to trust fully. So, so right there, you see that the definition is already different from what the world says, right? Because a conviction, certainty, and to trust fully is very different from blind faith, uh, educated guessing, uh, and, and wishful thinking. That's the definition of the word faith, but, but it gets better, okay? Everybody say it gets better. Look, he says, now faith is confidence. Now, here's the thing. You guys know that I have a love-hate relationship with the NIV, and it's more hate than love, okay? And, and I, I, since we're part of another campus, I can't really choose what translation we use, but NIV is what we've chosen to use. Almost always, the NIV butchers passages. But if there's ever been a passage that the NIV has butchered, is this passage right here, okay? So I, I don't know who was translating this. I, I don't know what, what, what they were looking at, but it's crazy, Okay? So, so what I want to do is I want to explain what it actually says, okay? okay? So, so the first word is the word confidence. Now, confidence seems like a pretty strong word, right? That's a pretty strong word. doesn't seem very subjective to me. That seems pretty objective. Well, one commentator says, one Greek scholar said that the word confidence is way too weak for what it actually says in the Greek. It's too subjective, he says, because what it actually says is much stronger than confidence. Now, here, here's why this is important, because the word confidence in the Greek there is the word hypostasis. Hypostasis. The word hypo in Greek means under, and the word stasis in Greek means stand. So it literally means to understand. But it doesn't mean understand the way we think of understanding. It literally means that faith is the thing under our Christian life. Faith is the thing that holds up our Christian life. So, so in other words, faith is it, just like your foundation of your house holds your house up. Faith is what holds up your Christian life. It is what's standing under your Christian life. It is what girds it up. It is what holds it up. It's faith. Hupostasis. So what you see just in the Greek, this word confidence isn't strong enough. I don't go to my house and sleep well at night because I'm confident that my house is going to stand up. No, there's a foundation there. Hypostasis. There's something holding it up. There's a basis. There's a foundation. Faith is the foundation of your walk with Jesus. It is the foundation. It is the basis. 
of what your walk with Jesus is. But here's what's beautiful about that word. Greek is so much better than English, and here's why. Because many of these words have multiple meanings, okay? The word there, hypostasis, not only does it mean foundation or basis or understanding, something that stands under something, right? But it means a title deed. Now, you're like, a title deed? What? For those of you who don't own anything, you have no idea what a title deed is, okay? But if you own a car or a house, you are given a title deed. And what a title deed does is it legally proves that you are the owner of whatever that thing is, whether it's a house or a car or, or a motorcycle or a boat, whatever it is. A title deed is the way which you can legally prove that something belongs to you. So let me give you an example. A, a few months ago, one of our cars got a big hole blown through the engine. Don't know how it happened, but it blew through. And we went to the mechanic, and the, the, to fix the car cost way more than the car. And so we're like, yeah, you know, let's go ahead and just get a new car, right? So we left our car with the tow company. A few weeks ago, we get a letter in the mail, and the tow company says, we're going to need the title because we can't do anything to this car unless you transfer the title to us. Why? Because the title, the name on the title reveals to you who owns the vehicle. So they need the title because they can't do, they're not in possession of it yet. They have it right there, but it doesn't belong to them until they have a title. The Greek word there, confidence, means a title deed. So, so follow with me here. What it means is that faith, and we're going to get to this in a little bit. This is going to be a very important point, point I make later, but faith isn't something that you manufacture. It isn't something that you discover. It is a gift given to us by God. The faith that you have, God has gifted you faith, and that faith is a title deed. Because you have faith, it proves it's literally a title deed. It means that you are legally an owner, legally in possession of all the other things that the Bible promises you. The gospel promises a lot. And if you have faith, God-given faith, then that faith is a title deed. It is a proof that you are a owner of everything else. You are a possessor of everything else. You are legally guaranteed to everything. Legally guaranteed to everything the Bible promises you. Not because you earned it, not because you worked for it, but legally guaranteed. That's what the word there, confidence, means. Look, just that word, I can stop right there. And, and, that's, and that's a better definition than anyone's ever had on faith. The wishy-washy definition that most Christians have and most people have. It is a title deed, legally guaranteeing ownership and possession of everything the Bible promises you in Jesus. Then it gets better. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And again, completely butchered. Because here's what the word assurance, right? When you read the word assurance, you think of something emotional, right? Like, like if someone is struggling, you come around them and you assure them that everything is going to be okay. Assure seems very emotional. It seems very, like it has, it's at the heart level. The crazy thing is, is that when you look at the actual word, it's got nothing to do with your emotions. It's got nothing to do with how you feel, okay? The word there, assurance, in the Greek, it literally means to test something in order to prove its validity. It means to investigate something, to find proof. It means to think critically about something, to figure out if it's legit or not. Literally, the word assurance there has nothing to do with your emotions at all has nothing to do with how you feel. It has to do with a conclusion that you arrive at after you have thought critically, after you have examined all the evidence. See the difference? You see how this faith that we're talking about here is not this subjective, wishy-washy, uh, uh, educated guessing or, or, or wishful thinking. Faith is much stronger than that. And the word assurance there means to test to investigate, to, 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 to try something out and figure out if it's legitimate, to see if there's evidence to prove the point. That's big. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't view faith this way. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't behave 
in light of that word. Then it says, this is what the, ancient, the ancients were commended for. By faith, we what? Understand. Now, that's, this is probably the word that they got closest. This is the one that they were closest to. Because, because the word there to understand means to comprehend something after thinking critically about it. It means to ponder something closely. It's what the word there, understand, means. So watch this, okay? Follow with me here. The word confidence has to do with a legal standing, a title deed that is guaranteed to you by faith. The word assurance has to do with your thinking, your mind. And the word understand also has to do with your thinking and your mind. So one of them is legal and the other two are intellectual. And none of them have to do with your emotions. But, but so often, that's all we do, right? Pastor, pray for me. I'm struggling in my faith. I'm really down in my faith. First of all, it's not your faith. It's actually not biblically correct. Faith is given as a gift. But so often when you ask people why you're struggling, almost always it's emotional. Almost always is, I don't feel like God's close. I don't feel like whatever. And what we see is that that's the problem. That the reason why you are struggling with your faith is not because you're overthinking things. It's because you're underthinking things. I don't think you guys heard what I just said. I know Garland's not here, but I just feel like someone should be talking to me right now. Okay? The problem with your faith, listen to this, is not that you're under, overthinking, is that you're underthinking. Can I get an amen? amen? That's why in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to people who are struggling with anxiety, who are struggling with fear, who are struggling with worry. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, you of little faith. Then he says, consider the birds and consider the lilies. You know what the word consider there is in Greek? It's a thinking term. Jesus says the reason why you're anxious, the reason why you're worried, the reason why you're discontent, the reason why you're frustrated is because you're not thinking. Consider, he says, consider this and consider that and think about this and think about that. The, the reason why we are of little faith is not because we overthink, but because we underthink. That's what we see here. That's clear as day. That's why I don't have to give you a definition because the definition is right there. I got to explain the definition. I don't got to give you the definition because verses 1 and 3 gives you the definition right there. It says, now faith is that. That's the definition. And my goal is to explain it to you, not to define it for you because it's already there for us. Now, one of the things that uh, I came across... Um, Martin Luther, and I'm talking about the German Martin Luther, not the black Martin Luther. Uh, uh, the German Martin Luther, uh, who, who died several centuries ago, he talks about this passage, and he talks about faith in general. And he presents this concept that I had never considered before. And because he, he's, you know, one of those uh, overachieving types, he does it all in Latin. And I can't do Latin, and neither can you, so, so we're, we're on the same boat. So I'm going to do it in English. And so what he does is he takes the concept of faith and he brings up this concept that I've never thought of before. He says that every single person in here walks by faith and that faith is more central and essential to you than what you think. And you're like, well, I'm not a churchgoer. I don't believe in all this stuff. Well, he says you use faith more than you think. And so what he does, he says that in faith, there are three aspects to faith that we use again and again and again with every decision we make, but specifically with the big decisions, okay? He says that the first aspect, the first step of, of faith that we use all the time is we must seek understanding. Once we seek understanding, then understanding leads to conviction. And then from conviction, we move to commitment. This is what he says. He says, all faith requires those three steps. Understanding, then conviction, then commitment. So for understanding, he says, you, you seek the credibility of something. Then if it's credible, then you move from uh, uh, credibility to, I can't think of the middle word right now, but it ends with vulnerability, okay? 
So forgive me for that. So happens when you don't have anything up here. So, so, so he says that that's how it is. That's, that's the flow, right? So you, you have to go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Oh, sorry, probability. There we go. So it's you, you search the credibility of something, then credibility becomes probability, and then probability becomes vulnerability. So let me give you some examples of what Martin Luther means, okay? So let's say, for example, that you move into a new town, a brand new area that you've never lived in before. One of the things that you're going to do if you have insurance and you want to make sure you see a doctor is you're going to look for a primary care physician for your family. But because that decision is so important, you're not just going to randomly pick a name out of a hat. You're going to do research. You are going to seek understanding. You are going to look at the credibility of the physicians in your area. You're going to hear what people think about it. You're going to look for reviews online. You're going to do your research. That's the understanding phase. Then he says, from understanding, you go to conviction. At, at some point, you got to set up an appointment. Then you're kind of in that probability uh, uh, conviction phase for a little bit. If the doctor ends up performing, then you move towards commitment. Then you move towards vulnerability because now you're putting yourself under their care and you're trusting their word. He says, every person goes through that process again and again and again in their daily life. So, for example, you're looking for a mechanic. Your car breaks down. You don't just go to any mechanic. You want to make sure you find the right mechanic. And so you seek understanding. You, you seek the, to find out what the credibility of the people in your area are that fix cars. Once you seek understanding and, and discover their credibility, then you move towards uh, conviction and probability. And if that goes well, then you move to commitment. You actually leave your car and you walk away and let them do whatever they got to do. And you know another place where you see this, if any, anybody here who's single, is you see this when it comes to dating, Right? When, when, when you decide you're going to date somebody, you don't know if that person's crazy or not. You don't know if they have debt or some disease. You don't know. So what you do is you do some research, right? You, you seek understanding. You test their credibility. And if that goes well, then you move from credibility to probability. There's conviction. There's a debt. You start seeing each other. And if that goes well, then conviction then becomes commitment, and you finally get married, and you make yourself vulnerable to that person for a lifetime. See, but what we see, though, is that faith is required more than we think and that many of us walk by faith more than what we think. So even if you're not a churchgoer, even if you're not a Christ follower, you walk by faith. And what Luther says is that as hard as it seems, because you might be sitting there thinking, oh, this is too hard. This is way big of a, too big of a jump for me. I just can't believe something like that. I just can't jump into something like that. I'm not a faith person. Well, you are a faith person, and you make more faith decisions than what you think. And what I pray is that you would seek to understand what the Bible says. Seek to understand it. Do your research. Check to see if it's credible. And then if it's credible, then you can move to, from credibility to probability. And you, it starts to become a conviction. You start to come regularly. You start to, to, to read the Bible and to pray. And then if it is what it says it is, then you can move to vulnerability, which is full commitment. But it's not really faith until there's commitment. And what a lot of us want, this is why a lot of people stay single for so long, and what a lot of us want is we want conviction before we give, we want full conviction first before we give commitment. But the reality is the majority of life is not like that. When you get married and you're sitting across someone, you're, you're, you're standing across someone, you're making vows hoping that this person is going to be faithful to what they said because you're hoping to be faithful to what you said. But it's not faith until you commit until you make yourself vulnerable. And so I would challenge you this. If the barrier that's keeping you from considering God is the concept of faith, I would argue that you exercise faith a lot more than what you think. Look what, uh, uh, this is a quote from Sanders, uh, Oswald Sanders. Look what he says about faith. He summarizes this verse wonderfully. Oh, this section, verses one through three. He says, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. But don't miss what it says there. It says the believing soul. So, so, so if you're just considering it, if you're still over here in the understanding phase and you're still thinking, taking to see it's credible, that's fine. But it says that it doesn't actually become clear until you move from credibility to probability to vulnerability. When you get to be a believing soul, then it says, you will treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. 
It says, I didn't bring this up in the first service, but I think it just, it just came to mind right now. When it says that faith is the confidence for what we hope for, for things hoped for, it, 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 one of the, one, I think it's the King James that says faith is the substance. So here's, what this is, this, here's, here's the way I thought. It might be a stupid illustration, but here's what came to my mind, okay? Faith gives substance to things that are not seen. So um, one, of the, one of the movies that my daughters like to watch is uh, Hotel Transylvania. And for you really conservative types, you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they watched that. Yeah, calm down. So anyway, so <laughs> they watch a lot worse than that. But anyway, so, so, so in, in, that, in, that, in that movie, Hotel Transylvania, there's this invisible guy. And no one sees him. He can't be seen. And there's a part in the movie where I don't know if it's like sugar or sand or something falls on him. And then all of a sudden, the invisible is visible. See, he, he couldn't be seen before. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, like I said, I don't remember if it was water or a sand or something lands on him. And all of a sudden, the invisible becomes visible. Faith is that powder. Does that make sense? I, I didn't see it before, but now I see it. And so I came here this morning to tell you that, yes, there are invisible things around you. And those things are just as real as the visible things around you. But the only way you will see them is if you activate your faith. That's what the Bible says. So I don't know why God laid that on my heart for this one, but that just means someone had to hear it. Okay? Look what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is true. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Can, can I tell you something real quick? Is, can, can I be honest with you? Is that okay? Here's the thing. A lot of people want faith, right? But, but here's the problem. You want faith you want, but, 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 but what we see in Scripture is that faith is a response. Follow me here. If there's no revelation, there's no response. I'm going to say that again. If there's no revelation, there's no response. And so maybe the reason why your faith is waning, maybe the reason why your faith is weak is because there's no revelation. You don't spend time in God's Word. You don't spend time in community. You don't have anyone calling you out. You don't have anyone holding you accountable. You're not praying. You're not reading. You're not, you're not meditating. So, of course, there's no response because there's no revelation. And so the reason why your faith is weak is because faith is a response to revelation. If there's no revelation, there's no response. That's why one of the things that bothers me is when you come to churches or you come to uh, uh, small groups or whatever, and people are telling you to, hey, let's worship the Lord or let's sing to the Lord. Let's rejoice in the Lord. For what? What are we rejoicing about? What did he do? If there's no revelation, there's no rejoicing. If there's no revelation, there's no confessing. If there's no revelation, there's no repenting. And so if faith is a response, the only way faith works is if it's exposed to revelation. So if there's no revelation, there's no response. So don't be surprised if your faith is struggling when you only hear the Bible on Sundays. Of course it's going to struggle. Of course it's going to struggle because faith is a response. Faith is always a response to a truth revealed in Scripture. So if I want people to confess, I got to tell people about God's holiness. If I, if I want God's people to be comforted, I got to tell them about God's love. If I want people to repent, I got to tell them about God's forgiveness. But faith is a response. And so if there's no faith and there's no response, then that probably means there's no revelation. And if that's true, whose fault is that? One of my favorite quotes, and I'm going way over, way over on this first point, but who cares? Um, one of my favorite quotes uh, comes from um, Philip Yancey in one of his books. He says, faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So, so I got to walk by faith during this season, but at some point, God's going to bring me out of this season, and I'm going to be able to look back, and it's going to make sense. But, but faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That's what faith is. That's just the first point, y'all. So the first point 
is the meaning of faith. The, the second point that I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the barriers of faith. Now, now that we have a biblical definition of what faith is, I want to take some time during this second point to identify four barriers that keep us from expressing and exhibiting and displaying biblical faith. Okay? So if you're taking notes, the, the first barrier is this. The first barrier to biblical faith is misunderstood faith. Misunderstood faith. Now, what do I mean by misunderstood faith? Here's what I mean. Up to this point, you might have had a misunderstanding of what faith actually was. So listen, one of the barriers you can have to faith is having a wrong definition of faith. When you have a misunderstanding of faith, then you don't respond to it accordingly. How can I respond biblically if I don't have a biblical definition? That's what we see. And so the problem with a lot of us is that we have stopped thinking. We have shut our brains off because we do believe that faith is wishful thinking. We, we do believe that faith is just educated guessing. And then the problem is that you stop thinking when the definition has everything to do with thinking. It's not that you're overthinking, it's that you're underthinking. Which is why the passage I brought up earlier in Matthew 6, Jesus makes it very clear that the, 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 he says, you of little faith he says, the reason why you are struggling is because you aren't thinking enough. You aren't considering enough. You aren't pondering enough. You aren't investigating enough. So, so the first reason, and, and I've, taken that, that, I've taken that first barrier off the table now. You, 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 now you have a biblical definition of faith. So the first one is that you have a misunderstanding. There's a misunderstood faith. That, that's off the table now because now you have a biblical definition of faith. So we're moving through that one quicker than the other ones. The next barrier is this. It's not just misunderstood faith, but it's misdirected faith. Everybody say misdirected. misdirected. Now, here's the thing about misdirected faith. You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I, I, you know, I appreciate this whole faith conversation. You know, I appreciate that you're so passionate about this. And this all seems well and good, but I'm not really a church person. I'm not really a God person. I have other things on my radar. I have other things on my agenda. I'm not really a faith person. Here's what I'm here to tell you. I'm here to tell you that you are a faith person and that every single person in here has faith in something. Whether you are an agnostic or an atheist or a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Catholic or a Jew, every person in here believes in something. Every person in here is placing their faith in something. So, so here's what bothers me so much. People who are not Christians, they look at Christians like they're puppies and they're like, oh, that's so cute. Look, they have faith. Guys, come here. Come here. Look, look, look. Look at the faith they have. Isn't that so sweet? Wow. And then and you treat it like it's a talent they have. Like it's like they can sing and you can't. Or they can play an instrument and you can't. I wish I could have faith like that. <laughs> Golly, you have a lot of faith. Listen, you have just as much faith and are using and utilizing just as much faith as the Christian is. Every person, the question isn't whether you have faith or not. The question is, what is your faith in? Okay. So, so, so maybe you're sitting here this morning and you might not be a Christ follower, but maybe your faith is in your career. Maybe your faith is in your money. Maybe your faith is in your family. Maybe your faith is in your education. Maybe your faith is in your past. Maybe your faith is in your future. Maybe your faith is in your retirement. Maybe your faith is in your romance. Maybe your faith is in working out. I don't know what it is, but your faith is in something. And you know what the most ridiculous thing that our culture places their faith in? And our culture loves this one. Our culture loves to place their faith in faith. That's what our culture says, right? You hear every, all the time, celebrities and athletes and politicians. It doesn't matter what faith you have as long as you have faith. Faith is important. Faith is necessary. Faith is central. Faith is required. It doesn't matter what your faith is as long as you have faith. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would you have faith in faith? Faith was never meant to be an end in itself. Faith is a means to an end. Listen, the strength of your faith is not the strength of the individual's faith. It's the object of your faith. The strength of your faith comes from the object that you're placing your faith in. If your faith is in yourself, then that's not a strong faith. 
If your faith is in your 401k, that's not a strong faith. If your, if your faith is in your career or your finances or your, 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 uh, your athletics, that's not a strong faith. And, and so what you need to see is that everyone has faith. The question is, what is your faith in? But if your faith is in faith, woof. You know, that's why so many Christians struggle when things go bad. That's, that's why so many Christians uh, uh, freak out when, when things don't go their way. You know, you know why? And not, not just Christians. I would say non-Christians as well. Here's why we struggle. Because we might theoretically claim that our faith is in God. But practically, if someone were to follow you around, you actually live like an atheist. And your faith is in, in everything but God. And what breaks my heart, and I do this all the time too, but what breaks my heart is when Christians treat faith not as the first response, but as the last resort. Can I say that again? What bothers me is when Christians treat faith not as a first response, but as the last resort. That's why Corey Tamboom, she, she talks about prayer when she brings it up, but I'm going to hijack her quote for a second. For a lot of Christians... Faith is not the steering wheel of your life. It's the spare tire of your life. So faith is great. And I have it there in case I need it. But it's not my steering wheel. No way. Now, if the car breaks down, I'm going to go get it. But, but if it doesn't, why do that? Faith for a lot of us isn't the steering wheel. It's the spare tire. That's the issue. It's not the first response. It's the last resort. It's, the, it's that thing right behind the glass that says, break in case of emergency. That's how we treat faith. So the first barrier is misunderstood faith. The second barrier is misdirected faith. Uh, the third barrier is misguided faith. Misguided faith. Here's what I mean by misguided faith. At some point, you either misguided yourself or someone misguided you and told you that you are the one that initiated the faith. And because you are the one that initiated it, then what that means is that you're the one that sustains it. Okay? That's the issue, guys. That's what the whole book of, uh, of Galatians is about. Paul says, how can you start something by the Spirit and yet then conclude it and perfect it in the flesh? That makes no sense. If the Spirit started it, then the Spirit will finish it. And so what a lot of us do, and we get misguided faith. Either we, like I said, either we were misguided by some televangelists or we were misguided in our own bad theology. And what we think is that we are the ones who initiated it. And so as a result, we must be the ones that sustain it. The problem with that is that it's not biblical. Okay. Now, I'm going to step on some people's toes right now. Now, if you're new to the church thing, this is going to be a little bit over your head, but this is more for the people who, who've been studying the Bible for a while, okay? There are certain people who they believe that faith is a response that human beings manufacture. Faith is a response that human beings can, can create within themselves. That it's just, we just, one day it makes sense and we just accept it and embrace it. The problem with that is Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Then you go down a few verses, it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. In other words, the reason why faith can't come from you is because you're spiritually dead. It doesn't say you're spiritually on, on life support. It doesn't say that you're spiritually in a coma. It says you are spiritually dead. And so the reason why you cannot make a faith decision without God intervening and giving you the gift of faith is because you are dead. Everyone say dead. Okay? So that means that if you didn't initiate it, praise be to God, then that means you don't sustain it. Since you didn't earn it, that means you can't lose it. Because then the same people who say you choose it are the same people who say you can lose it. I don't see anything biblical about that. Because in Ephesians it says that the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit that guarantees heaven. So unless you burp the Holy Spirit one day with indigestion or something, like you, get, you eat some bad pizza and the Holy Spirit disappears. He's a deposit, the Bible says. 
God says, I'm going to give you something on the front end, and that guarantees I'm going to give you the rest later. That's why later on in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, for it is a gift of God. Not by works. It is a gift of God. Okay? So you might be misguided in thinking that you can lose it, but you can't lose it if you didn't do anything to get it. And I remember 2004, February 2004, when I became a Christian, 15 years ago now, I, I thought I chose Jesus. I, I came to realize later on that after I read the Bible that Jesus chose me. He chose me. I didn't choose him because there was nothing in me that wanted him. Okay? This is why, okay, follow me here. This is why people with misguided faith, this is so dangerous, guys. But this is why I regularly call out false teachers. Because I believe that part of my job is not just to tell you the truth, but to identify the lies. Okay? So when people like Joel Osteen and Joyce Myers and people of that ilk tell you, oh, if you want blessing, you got to have faith. God will bless you to the degree that you have faith. If you want a car, if you want health, if you want wealth, if you want good things, you got to have faith. Here's the problem with that. If God blesses me to the degree that I have faith, then the shadow side of that is that God will punish me to the degree that I don't have faith. And so you have people who are walking around suffering convinced that the reason why they're suffering is because they didn't have enough faith. It's not biblical, though. You know how I know it's not biblical? Because in the very passage that we're looking at this morning, we are, we are told about two individuals. One of them is named Enoch. The other one is named Abel. Abel and Enoch are both considered heroes of the faith, people who lived by faith. And yet, one of them was brutally murdered, and the other one was taken to heaven and never experienced death. So, so does that mean that Abel had less faith than Enoch? That God was less faithful to him? No. Because your faith doesn't determine whether God blesses you or punishes you. Faith means I trust God regardless of my circumstances. Faith means that when I look at my circumstances, I look at, so here's what faith means. Faith means I don't look at my circumstances, uh, I I don't look at God's goodness through the lens of my circumstances. It means I look at my circumstances through the lens of God's goodness. So that regardless of what's happening, God is good. So, the final one, and this is the one I want to conclude with and we'll move to the final point is this. The final barrier that keeps you from biblical faith is misapplied faith. If you're taking notes, write that down. It's misapplied faith. What do I mean by misapplied faith? One of the things that, and I brought this up during communion, in that book I've been reading, uh, Desiring the Kingdom, Uh, J.A. Smith says that every single one of us desires a kingdom. Every single one of us has a kingdom in mind that we believe is going to satisfy us, that we believe will be paradise, that we believe will will give us everything that we're looking for. And he says the problem with that kingdom is that if that kingdom is not the kingdom of God, then our behaviors, our patterns, our liturgies, our habits are going to be advancing that kingdom, not God's kingdom. So here's what I mean by misapplied faith. Did you know that the world has their own kingdoms that it's promoting? There's the kingdom of consumerism, and there's the kingdom of individualism, and there's the kingdom of pragmatism. And, and if we're not careful, what can happen is we, we start to embrace and accept these, these practices, these behaviors, these patterns, these liturgies that are advancing kingdoms totally different from God's kingdom. There's a connection, guys between what you believe and how you behave. If what I believe is true, then it should have major implications on my liturgies, my behaviors, my patterns. So here's what this means. If God's kingdom is truly the kingdom you're trying to desire and pursue and advance, then what that means is you got to be in God's word and you got to be with God's people and you got to be in prayer and you got to give time, talent, treasure. If your habits don't reflect 
the kingdom that you claim to be advancing. Don't be surprised when that's not the kingdom you advance. And don't be surprised, surprised when you, that, that, then your, your, your faith gets weak. You know, one of the things that's fascinating to me is that Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says to walk by faith, not by sight. He doesn't say walk by faith, not by reason. He says walk by faith, not by sight. But I love the word walk. You know why? Because the word walk is so boring. See, we want exciting stuff. We want parachute by faith, <laughs> skydiving by faith, skipping by faith, jumping by faith, base jumping by faith. No, no, no. Faith is walking. Daily walking. Praying, reading, fellowshipping, accountability. Praying, reading, fellowshipping, accountability. Giving of your time, giving of your talent, giving of your treasure. If you're waiting for this big moment, that's not how faith works. Faith isn't hard. Faith is regular. Remember, that's one of my Greek professors told me. Greek isn't hard. Greek is regular. As long as you do it all the time, it's easy. But if you don't, then don't be surprised when it's hard. That's what we see. One of, the, one of the pastors that I read this week, he had this awesome illustration. Uh, oh, not illustration, but this concept that he says, this is how he promotes faith. He, he tells his church this, and I love it. I, I, I'm thinking about even taking it for myself because it's so good. He says that faith requires trusting and treasuring. You got to trust Christ and you got to treasure Christ. That's what faith is. Trusting and treasuring. It's a cycle. It keeps going. You trust, then you treasure. You trust, then you treasure. You treasure, then you trust. And it keeps going. That's what means walk by faith. Treasuring and trusting, treasuring and trusting. So here's what he tells his church. He says, Jesus uh, is the savior of your life, right? Jesus saves your life, that's trusting. But then the longer you walk with him, he then becomes your life, that's treasuring. You follow with me here? So he saves your life, but then he becomes your life. So you go from trusting him to treasuring him, right? Oh, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the deliverer of my soul, that's trusting, but then the longer I walk with him, he becomes the delight of my soul. That's treasuring. He says that faith is trusting and treasuring. Trusting and treasuring. That's why one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament about this comes from Psalm 28. In Psalm 28, he says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Listen to this. My heart trusts in him. That's the first part. And he helps me. And then again, the NIV butchers this, but it says my heart, what it says there is rejoices or my heart exalts in the Lord for joy, and with my song I praise him. So what we see is that the trusting leads to treasuring, and then the treasuring leads to trusting, and then the trusting leads to treasuring, and it just keeps going on again and again and again and again. It's, it's really boring, guys. You got to walk by faith. Don't sprint by faith. Don't skydive by faith. Walk by faith. One of the stories that I came across this week was this story of this lady who she said, she, she, she was talking about how she was on a plane once with her kids and her husband, and they were going from the United States to Tokyo. And she was in the bathroom with her four-year-old, and she said there was this really big turbulence, and the, 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 the plane just started shaking. And she said that she, it was so much that she actually kind of fell over and hit herself on the wall, and she was like, what the heck? She said that she gets back to the plane, to the seat, and her husband and the rest of the kids thought it was the funniest thing ever. They loved it. Like, they were having the time of their life. And she said, from that moment on, she had been on many planes after that. From that moment on, she struggled with trusting planes. And she said that every time there was any sort of turbulence, she would freak out and she would grab her husband, white-knuckled, like this. And her husband and her kids would just laugh at her until the turbulence was over and they would get there when they got there. But here's what she mentioned, and this is such a beautiful picture of faith. She said, even though she had no faith, and even though her kids and her, her husband and her kids had tons of faith, they both arrived at the same destination. You know why? Because what determined whether you got there or not wasn't the size of their faith. It was the strength of the pilot. It's not the, the, si the size of your faith. It's the size of the person you place your faith in. It's not the, the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the strength of the object that you place your faith in. And what she says, that's how faith is. And no, can you imagine if the pilot walked up to her and said mid-flight, hey, hey, listen, um, we were going to go to uh, New York, but we're going to have to go ahead and just land the plane right here because your faith isn't strong enough. And, and because your faith isn't strong enough, I'm not sure the plane's going to work. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do my job. So we're going to go ahead and just land early because your faith isn't strong enough. No pilot will say that. 
Because it doesn't matter what your faith is. As long as, long as you're on the plane, you're going to get there. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the ability and the strength of the person that you're placing your faith in. Can I get an amen? amen. So we've looked at the meaning of faith. We've looked at the barriers to faith. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the source of faith. The source. What is the source of our faith? If it's true that the, it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the strength of the individual we place our faith in, then we have to answer the question, who then is the source of our faith? Where does our faith come from? Where is our, fo- our, 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 base, our faith rooted in? What is it rooted in? And so what I want to do in this last point is I want to look at the source of faith. Who is and what is the source of faith? Here's what's fascinating. In this passage, there are two people that are described to us. Okay, you have the story of Enoch and the story of Abel. Now, we don't really have time to look at the story of Enoch, and the Bible doesn't really write much about Enoch anyways, but I really want to look at the story of Abel. Because in the story of Abel, you have a story, it's the only person in this entire chapter where you have a contrasting figure that was a bad example. So, so everyone else is just, Abraham's by himself, Noah's by himself. But in the story of Abel, it's interesting because you have Abel and he is contrasted with his brother Cain. Okay, now here's what's so amazing about this passage. It says, well, let me read it for you. It says here, it says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Now, follow with me here. In this story, there are two brothers. You have Abel and you have Cain, right? God tells them, I need you to approach me with a sacrifice. The two brothers approach him, and the passage says, both in Genesis and here, that God accepts one and doesn't accept the other. He embraces one offering and rejects the other. And the question is why? Why does God embrace Abel's offering but rejects Cain's offering? Why? What, what, was it God being temperamental? Is he playing good cop, bad cop? Like, what is it with God? Why does he choose one brother over the other brother? Well, in order to explain that, in order to understand what happens in Genesis 4, we got to go back and look in Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God tells Adam and Eve, listen, there's a tree. It's the, knowledge of good, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I do not want you to eat from that tree. Adam and Eve disobey God, and the Bible says that they became naked. They became exposed. They were already naked, but now they can feel their nakedness. They were naked physically, spiritually, relationally, emotionally. And one of the things that Adam and Eve do in order to respond to the nakedness is they grab fig leaves and they try to cover themselves. God shows up and says, what are you doing? You look like an idiot. The only way you're going to be covered is if I cover you. And so what God does, it says that he provided covering for them. And it's implied in the passage that in order for God to give them covering, an animal had to die. There had to be a sacrifice in order for them to be covered. Everyone thinks that the first murder or killing in the Bible is the killing Cain killing Abel. But what we see is that the first thing that died in the Bible was God killing an animal, sacrificing an animal in order to cover Adam and Eve. What God does temporarily, he tells them in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, what God does temporarily, he will eventually do permanently. He provides a temporary sacrifice, but he will eventually provide a permanent sacrifice. So when Abel and Cain go up to God, they understand, they should understand at least, that there is on, the only way to go to God is with a sacrifice. The only way to go to God is to have a covering, okay? That's what it says in Isaiah 61. It says that God's salvation covers us and his righteousness is a robe around us. And so, I, so, so we see is that Abel understood that Cain did not. Listen to this. Don't miss this. The distinction between Cain and Abel is so fundamental that I would argue it is the greatest distinction in humanity. Every person in here is either a Cain or an Abel. Okay? The greatest dividing line between people is not racial, is not economic, is not political, is this line right here. You're either a Cain or you're an Abel. What was the difference between Cain and Abel? Cain goes up to God, and people say it's the sacrifice he offered. It's not the sacrifice that God rejected. Listen, Cain was religious, but he wasn't righteous. He had the right action, but not the right attitude. He had faith, but not in God. Okay? Here's what I mean by religious. He was doing the right thing religiously, but his righteousness wasn't there because his righteousness was by faith, and he didn't have faith. He had the right actions externally, but not the right attitude internally. 
One of the things that you might assume is that Cain had no faith. Cain had tons of faith, just not in God. His faith was in himself. Every person in here is either an Abel or a Cain. You're either religious because your faith is in yourself, or you're righteous because your faith is in God. Every person in here is either coming to God in Jesus' name or in your own name. The question is, what type of offering are you giving? Who are you? See, because here's the thing, gosh. This passage is not ultimately about Cain or about Abel or about Enoch. This this passage, listen, listen. These people that we see in these stories, listen to this. We can learn from these people. We cannot lean on these people. Okay? We can be instructed by these people. We cannot be inspired by these people. These people can indicate where we are being bad, but they cannot impute us with good. These people can fuel our faith, but they cannot ignite our faith. Because this passage is not ultimately about Cain. This passage is not ultimately about Abel. This passage is not ultimately about Enoch. This passage is not ultimately about an offering. This this passage is ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Abel. You know why Jesus is the greater Abel? Do you know why Jesus is the greater Abel? Jesus is the greater Abel because Jesus came to give the greatest offering. And he came, and because of the greatest offering, he received God's greatest pleasure. But what's so incredible about Jesus is that in the passage, it says that God, because of his faith, God perceived Abel as righteous. Jesus wasn't perceived as righteous. Jesus was righteous. Okay? See, see, follow me here. What we see in this passage, what we see in this passage is that because of his faith, Abel was counted as righteous, only him as an individual. What's beautiful about Jesus is that because of his faith, we are counted as righteous. All of us, if we are willing to accept the offer. That's crazy. And so, so here's the question then. So, so if Jesus really is the greater Abel, then why is Jesus, okay, listen, if Jesus really is the greater Abel, then why is Jesus treated like the lesser Cain? If he's the greater Abel, why is he treated like the lesser Cain? Here's why. You ready for this? He did it for you. And because he did it for you, here's what, here's what we're seeing. Jesus at the cross received rejection so that we might receive a reward. At the cross, Jesus Christ experienced temporary uh, 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 withdrawal so that we might experience, uh, being, so that we, he, he was cut off temporarily so that we might be brought in for eternity. At, at the cross, Jesus was condemned so that we might be commended. At the cross, Jesus was punished so that we might please God. He did it for you. The the greater Abel was treated like a lesser Cain for you. The greater Abel was treated like Cain so that the Cains can be treated like Abel. That's why in the passage, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible. It it doesn't say you, you might do it. If you try really hard, there's a 60% chance. It says without faith, it is impossible to please God. But remember what I said. It's not just faith in general. It's not just faith in faith. It's not just faith in yourself. It's not just faith in the economy. It's not just faith in your education. It's not just faith in your money. It's not just faith in your past. It's not just faith in your looks. It's not just faith in your ability. The only faith that God accepts is faith in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? That's why, that's why it says in, in Hebrews 12, the, the writer of Hebrews, he gets so overwhelmed by what Jesus did that he says we must look to him, the, the author and perfecter of our faith. He doesn't say look to yourself. He doesn't say look at your gifts. He doesn't say look at your resume. He says look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. To him. It's the only way. That's why it says in Ephesians 6, in, in the, you hear about the armor of God. You know what it says about the armor of God? It says that faith is a shield. 
the shield of faith. And you're like, why is faith a shield? Why can't faith be a sword? Why can't faith be a belt or a helmet? It says that faith is the shield by which we extinguish the darts of the evil one. The fiery dart. Why? Well, here, here's why faith is a shield. The reason why faith is a shield is because the darts that Satan is constantly throwing at you is Satan says, you're not good enough. You're imperfect. You're a nobody. You're broken. You're ugly. You're this. You're that. Those are the darts that he's constantly throwing. The reason why faith is the shield is because when I place my faith in Jesus, I understand those darts can't hurt me anymore because I'm already loved. I'm already accepted. I'm already embraced. I'm already adopted. I'm already forgiven. I'm already validated. I'm already justified. And so throw all the darts you want. All you're doing is reminding me of what's true. I am broken. I am imperfect. I am a nobody. But Jesus was perfect. Jesus was beautiful. Jesus was a somebody for me. So throw all the darts you want. Because I have a shield now. And that shield is faith. And so this morning what we discovered was this. This morning we saw the meaning of faith. We saw the barriers to faith. And we saw the source of faith. And here's what we discovered. The source of faith is not some Old Testament patriarch. It's not a set of principles. It's not a list of precepts. It's not a book of Proverbs. The source of our faith is a person. And that person is Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.